So just a brief announcement. I'm going to be making some changes. I've been trying to streamline some of the stuff that I've been doing. I'm also interested in separating my public and private life. And so I'm going to be streaming on this page. for This is just for the Facebook users. I'll still be streaming live on YouTube. But for my Facebook followers, I'm going to be moving to the New Day Global group to stream on Sunday mornings. But I won't be doing that until... September 17th. So September 17th, I'll be starting to move things into the New Day Global group. So if you want to watch by Facebook, then you'll need to join that group. You can find that if you're watching by YouTube. I'll still be streaming on YouTube, but you can find the link to that Facebook group if you want to join it in my bio on my YouTube channel. So once again, in case you missed it, I'm going to be moving from this page, my personal page, to the private group, New Day Global. And um, so if you want to watch it come the 17th, that's when we're going to start, September 17th. I won't be able to make a video on September 10th. I'm going to the Broncos Raiders game. Those of you that know me know I'm a big Bronco fan, so it's opening day. They looked pretty good in the preseason last night. And so uh, I won't be... uh, Streaming on the 10th, but I will be on the 17th. And then on the 18th, that Monday, we had put out a poll and asked uh, when people would like to see another live where we just break down and go over uh, further what we went over on Sunday morning. I'll be doing that on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. So, so anyway, thanks for joining. So today, what we're going to talk about is we are going to talk about inner planes and higher worlds. We're going to talk about ascension. We're going to talk about some of this sort of new agey sort of stuff that is rooted in older traditions, <laughs> really going all the way back to shamanism in the beginning, shamanic journeys, that kind of thing. And just look at some of that stuff and see how can we use that not to escape our reality, not to escape life here on earth, not to escape our humanity, but how we can ascend and then descend, ascending to experience transformation and then descending in order to bring that transformation into an actualized state here on planet Earth, here in our lives. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So just to define some terms for some people that may not be familiar with it, we hear a lot about ascension. Um, the idea is ascending and going higher. When I was in the Christian movement, we talked about uh, ascending into heaven and having heavenly experiences um, in the New Age circles and other occult circles. Maybe they talk about astral projection, uh, leaving your body, lucid dreaming, <clears throat> or just experiencing things through meditation or through really, uh, like I said, shamanic journeys. Uh, which is all about changing your state. So if I'm losing you a little bit because you're not familiar with the terminology, hang in there with me. So I want to lay a framework from hermetic teaching. When I say hermetic teaching, I'm talking about a spiritual tradition that is native to the West, uh, the hermetic corpus, the hermetic writings. I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. Uh, date back to possibly before the time of Christ. They're a set of writings on spirituality and the n- nature of reality, things like alchemy, that uh, are supposedly written by a entity, individual known as Hermes Trismegistus or Hermes the Thrice Great, the Three Times Great, who is a... Uh, new form for Greek culture, Greek Western culture of the Egyptian god Thoth or Thoth or I don't know. I'm sure I'm probably not saying that right. But uh, a lot of the Greek philosophers that we took foundations of our Western society from were hermeticists in some form or fashion. And the hermetic tradition was, like I said, very much alive and well <laughs> in 
Hellenistic culture around the time of Jesus, there are certain aspects of the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures that reflect that reflect Hermetic teachings. And then there was a revival during the Renaissance in Europe, Italy, France, in particular, of Hermetic teachings and Hermetic wisdom. This is where the tarot cards come from um, and how they became to be used in esoteric teachings. And then there was another revival of that in about the mid to late 19th century and into the 20th century when there was really an occult revival then. And then about the middle of the 20th century, early 20th century, uh, it began to die out. And it's a philosophy. It's an understanding of the basic nature of reality and of life. And it helps us understand some things about ascension. So we're going to be looking at that. At, at, at Ascension and what we're talking about today from that sort of hermetic perspective and try to bring in some modern terminology and a modern way of looking at that to sort of reshape it, refashion it, reform it for the day and age in which we live. And then we'll look at some practical ways that you and I can experience this stuff in a way that will benefit us and that will profit us. So I'm, I'm saying all that, laying the foundation for the hermetic stuff because uh, the hermetic teachings give us a different idea about who and what God is or source or creator and give us a cosmology and a model or a map, if you will, to understand some of the things that I'm going to be talking about. So basic to this, and there are many different versions, just like with anything, just like with Christianity or various different forms of philosophy or any other spiritual path religion. It has been adapted by many different people. It's been understood and interpreted in different ways by many people. And so what I'm giving you here is my synthesis of studying these things for the last, gosh, probably the last 10 years or whatever. So I'm just boiling down everything that I've learned and understood about it for the last 10 years and giving you my map, my version of it. So I'm not trying to speak in any way authoritatively. I just want to offer some things to you and see if it's helpful for you and see if it fits for you. So the idea of creation, let's start with that. The idea of creation from a hermetic perspective and from most occult perspectives, you see this in the Kabbalah as well of Judaism. And there is a hermetic Kabbalah as well. For those of you who don't know what Kabbalah is, it is a tradition mostly within Judaism that interprets scripture and looks at life from an esoteric perspective. And by esoteric, I just mean a hidden perspective that in other words, there are mysteries there, mysteries recorded, mystical teachings in the Bible. And so it's a form of Jewish mysticism and occultism. And it also has an understanding of creation and of God or source or creation or universe. It doesn't matter what term you use, but it's very, very different than the Bible version or Christian version of God or of the creator. So one of the things that's important to realize is that within Christianity, what we did in Judaism, all the Abrahamic religions and pretty much any other religion that's out there, what happened was, was that as the biblical writers are writing the texts, they are, I'm going to use a fancy word, they're anthropomorphizing God, anthropomorphizing him. So let me explain that term. It comes from the word anthropos, and anthropos means human. So human, and it comes from morph, which means to turn into. So when we say anthropomorphize, what we're saying is that God was turned into a human, or God was given all kinds of human characteristics. This can be seen very, very clearly by anybody that does an honest uh, reflection and research into the, the God or gods of the Old Testament. When you look at Yahweh, certainly he has human characteristics. The hand of God is a human characteristic. The face of God is a human characteristic. But also there's all these personality quirks that are given to God in the Bible as well. He becomes angry. He becomes jealous. He changes his mind. He repents that he made humanity, and so he causes the flood. He changes his mind. He tells Moses he's going to wipe out the 
Israelites in the wilderness because he's sick and tired of them. He's fed up with them. And Moses intercedes for him, and it says God changed his mind. And so we see a lot of these human characteristics. And maybe one of the most fascinating uh, anthropomorphic visions of God is in the book of Psalms, this idea that God sits on a throne. That's anthropomorphizing. That's taking human governments at the time, projecting that onto God, projecting that onto his kingdom. Even the idea of a kingdom, that's a projection. And then, of course, this God needs to be worshipped and he needs to be served and he's a judge. All these things that trouble us or troubled us, uh, the genocides, the egotistical I need to be worshipped, um, all of these things are an anthropomorphizing, a turning of God into a human being <laughs> or making him like a human being, giving him all of these human characteristics. And that's usually, you know, where we get into trouble or we have a lot of problems. So a lot of people who become atheists or whatever, who were Christians, who were in the faith, who become atheists, part of what they're doing, I'm not saying this is the reason they do it, but part of what they're doing is they're full on rejecting these projections, these human projections that have been attributed to God. And so in that sense, that God then becomes very much imaginary. There was a a playwright, I can't remember his name, uh, but... Uh, one of the lines in one of his plays, he says, God made man in his image and man returned the favor. That explains this principle, this concept of anthropomorphizing God. From a hermetic perspective, it's more, it's more metaphysical than that. And what they would say is that in the beginning, there was what they called a monad. A monad is a singular self-contained unit. You could call it a unit of energy, um, whatever, but they're very careful in their descriptions that this monad was unknowable in many ways. And so they would say in the beginning was nothing, but not nothing in the sense that we think of nothing, but no thing. (laughs) In other words, it had no attributes. It had no characteristics. Now, if you think deeply about this, if something is completely singularity, it's one entity, one thing, it's impossible for there to be any kind of knowledge of it because knowledge requires comparison, number one. Knowledge requires comparison. We only know what cold is in comparison to hot. We only know what light is in comparison to darkness. So that's the first part. There was nothing uh, that you could compare this monad to, nothing even for this monad to compare itself to. And then at some point, the monad becomes self-aware. Now, Self-awareness is not a singularity process. And I hope I'm not losing you because I'm sounding, I'm using too big a language. It's really simple. Have you ever had, let me give you an illustration. Have you ever had a song that plays over and over in your head and you just wish you could get that song out of your head, but you can't get it and you're sitting there and it's like, I can't get this song out of my head. I want you to notice that there are two components happening there. There are two parts of yourself happening there. There's the part of yourself, the part of your brain or the part of your consciousness that's playing that song, that remembers that song, it's retrieving it from your memory and playing it over and over and over again in your head. So that's one singularity. But there's the other part of you that's hearing it and being irritated by the fact that you're hearing it. That requires two. So all self-reflection and all experience can never happen in oneness. It can only happen when there's at least two. So there has to be the experience and the experiencer. In self-reflection, there has to be the part of the self that I'm then thinking about. So the ability to think about your thoughts, the ability to observe your thoughts or listen to your thoughts. When you have that voice talking in your head that we've been talking about the last few weeks, you have the part of you that's doing the talking and the part of you that's doing the listening, right? That's self-reflection. So at some point in time, this monad became self-reflective and decided that it, and and this self-reflection created consciousness. This self-reflection created um Mind, if you will, awareness, experience. Again, when I use the term mind, I'm not just talking about the intellect. I'm talking about awareness and experience and that kind of stuff. And so it separated itself. And by separating itself into two, <laughs> the that which is knowing, that which is known, then you have a third thing, which is the knowledge. <laughs> 
So now you have three. And so in this cosmology, this monad kept separating and dividing itself over and over and over and over and over again for the purpose of understanding itself, for the purpose of experiencing itself. And that would be closer to what, from an occult perspective and hermetic perspective, we mean when we talk about God or we talk about the creator, or we talk about source. Why is this important? Because from a hermetic cosmological perspective, the material plane is the terminus. It's, it's the, it's the ultimate receiver or receptive point in creation. It's the, like I said, it's the terminus. It's the end point of creation, but it's not the only level or aspect of creation from the hermetic perspective. There are layers or levels of experience that are part of, for lack of a better term, consciousness or consciousness realms or consciousness places that exist in addition to the material world and in addition to the material plane. So you don't want to think about this like a, a layer of cake, but that's what we tend to do when we talk about ascension. Well, I'm going to send into these other higher planes, these other higher realms. We tend to think of it like a layered cake or something that is stacked, layers and levels that are stacked on top of each other. And that's not really the concept. It's more like those, have you seen those Russian nesting dolls where you have the big doll and you pull the doll out, there's another doll inside of it in the same image, and you pull that out, there's another one inside of it in the same image, and you pull that out until you get this tiny little doll. That's the idea of nesting, and that more accurately depicts the cosmology, the occult cosmology, or the esoteric cosmology of hermetic wisdom. And so the idea is, is that we're nested into these levels and layers of reality that each one, the, the lower plane reflects the higher plane. This is really super important. The lower plane reflects the higher plane. So, and the material world, the world of matter, the world that can be quantified, that can be measured, that can be observed, is the end result, if you will, of all these other layers. So, you see this in the writings of Plato, but you could do it this way. Let's let's just make it simple for you. I'm sitting in a chair. Perhaps you're sitting in a chair as well. So at the level of an archetype, an archetype means an original form or pattern, there exists the concept or the idea of sitting. <laughs> so the idea of a chair. So any way that you might sit, anything that's formed like a chair from the chair I'm sitting on, to your, you know, at my dining room table chair, to a sofa, to recliner chair. Those are all very, very different in their material manifestations, but at the level of the archetype, they're the same. So, uh, again, the chair that I'm sitting on, the chair that you're sitting on, the seat that you drive in in your car, the toilet seat that you sit on when you go to the bathroom, all of those are uh, corresponding to the archetype of the idea of a chair. And then from that archetype, then there's the idea of all the different types of chairs that I just mentioned. And then finally, somebody had to make those chairs, right? They had to make those chairs. So at the level of the idea, you have the archetype. That's one level. <clears throat> then from the archetype, you have diversity. So you see this pattern over and over again. You could say that the archetype of the chair is a form of a monad, right? And then the monad divides into all the different types of chairs that I'm talking about until finally somebody makes them and we actually have one that we can sit, that we can sit down on in the material world. And so that's the terminus of it. That's the end point. That's the end game of it. <clears throat> but it exists as an idea. It exists in all these variations of imagination and creation of ideas and consciousness. And it exists in physical Form. So that's the idea that we're talking about when we're talking about different levels and layers of reality. Now, why is this important? Because I've been belaboring the point for the last few weeks <clears throat> of this idea that there are at least two levels, I think, that we can agree upon of our experience as human beings. 
One is the objective world outside of us. There is an objective world out there. There is a chair out there. It doesn't just exist in my mind. This is a computer. <laughs> uh, you are watching on your computer. There is a sun. There is a moon. There are trees outside. There's a table here. There's a cup of coffee right here. That's the objective world, the world external to us. And it's a world that can be measured. Everything about this world, material world, can be measured. And if it can be measured, it can be quantified. Um, there's ounces in my cup. That's a measurement. There's dimensions to my chair. That's a measurement. There's dimensions to the room that I'm in. I can go out and measure the trees. I can, the, everything in my body, my body chemistry, my uh, white blood cell count, for example, if I go and have blood work taken, my white blood cell count can be measured. My red blood cell count can be measured. So everything out there is quantifiable. Now, where the scientific materialist makes a mistake, in my view, and I think it's very self-evident, is that they say that's all there is. All there is is matter that can be quantified, and that's it. But they don't have any way to account for the qualitative aspects of our experience. In other words, I can measure the ounces that are in this cup of coffee, but what can't be measured is how it tastes to me and the feeling that I get internally as part of my subjective experience when I taste it. So when we're talking about the realm of consciousness, to a large degree, we're talking about I'm sorry, qualitative stuff. Talking about the color red, the taste of coffee, the feeling of love, the feeling of regret. These things cannot be seen or measured. If you need proof of that, try to get someone to observe, measure, and repeat the dream you had last night. It can't be done. (laughs) It can't be done because that's the qualitative side of life. And so the problem that we have in scientific materialism, if we just go down that road and say this is all there is and this is all I'm going to trust and this is all I'm going to believe in, then we're in danger of losing the qualitative aspects of our humanity. So you could say there's the objective reality, the world out there, the world that is material, and science does a great job of explaining that plane of reality. But then, as human beings, we also have this subjective side to us that's qualitative. We have this experiential side. In other words, I can close my eyes and I can notice all the thoughts. I can imagine and I can create worlds. Artists do this all the time. Uh, authors, if you've written books, you've done this all the time. The only place that your book existed was in the realm of your own subjective understanding and beliefs and philosophies in the realm of your own consciousness. And nobody was able to penetrate that. Nobody was able to see that. Nobody was able to observe that. And nobody was able to measure that until you put it to paper. So I want you to see the correspondence between the world of subjective reality, or what I'm calling consciousness, and the world of objective reality, which is... Out here, right? But they correspond. And this is where I think we miss it horribly within all the spiritual systems that I'm familiar with, except the one that I'm explaining. Uh, take New Age spirituality, for example. A lot of the idea is, is that this world is a world of suffering. It's messed up. And that's absolutely true. And so ascension then becomes a way of escaping it. And they tend to look at these realms as layers of cake like i need to get up out of this human world and get into the higher planes get into the higher levels talk to the ascended masters ascend so that i don't have to deal with the world down here and it becomes a form of escapism there's not the correspondences that are natural that are a natural part of our everyday life and so i do not i don't like that same thing with Christianity, like the world is evil, my flesh and my body is evil, my energetic systems are evil, my uh, sexual energy is evil, my um, passions, any of my passions uh, that might lead to anger or jealousy or um, lust or, you know, the seven deadly sins. Those are just energies that are 
not integrated. Those are energies that are not harmonious with the rest of the being, and so they don't lead to a harmonious life. They're not something that we're supposed to kill off or get rid of or crucify. It's something that we're supposed to explore and experience and then harmonize and manage within our lives here on this material plane here on Earth. Now, just a side note for people who, um, uh, y- you know, you're, you're a scientific materialist and you just believe that consciousness is the result of this goo that's between, that's in my skull <laughs> and the chemicals there and the electrical firing there. And that's what produces all that stuff. And so in that sense, yes, it can be measured. It can be observed in brain scans and things like this. Again, I would argue for correlation, not causation. Here's what I mean by that. Um, in other words, because these realms are nested and because they reflect and all look like each other, then, of course, when I'm living in this physical plane, my consciousness is going to register in some form of observable, measurable pattern. Otherwise, I wouldn't be existing in this in this material world because this material world is observable. It's measurable. It's quantitative. You see what I'm saying? But to say that that's what creates this internal experience makes a certain amount of sense until you throw some science at it. So I'm just going to give you three examples. I'm going to give you three examples. There are people who have claimed to have had near-death experiences. Now, that is a very researched phenomenon. I don't want to say that it's common, but I want to say we have data in the accounts of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, even where scientifically it's been studied what's happening when a person is having a near-death experience. Now, one thing that they all have in common is that the person who experiences the near-death experience will describe a world that is more vivid in its sensory experience than the physical material plane. In other words, they'll say, I was in this space. It's more qualitative. I was in this space and I saw colors that I'd never seen before. I saw, again, things that correspond to the material world. I saw birds. I saw butterflies. I saw trees. I saw flowers. Um, but it's it's indescribable in, in the sense of its richness and its vividness. And I heard music that's unlike any other kind of music that I've heard before. And I felt love like I've never felt love before. So, in other words, what they have in common is they have this really deep, enriched, powerful sensory experience. Now, if your, if your consciousness is the byproduct of brain activity, and there have been studies that have shown this, that, that if, what I'm about to say, then the only thing that makes sense is that at the point of death, the brain is lighting up like a Christmas tree, and the person is experiencing that. But in fact, it's the exact opposite. Person can be totally brain dead and have no brain activity whatsoever, but they're having this enriched experience that they're having during that time when they died physically and their brain died and the brain activity stopped and the blood flow to the brain stopped and they were revived, whether that was two minutes or 30 seconds or five minutes, or you can go out and look at the testimony of neurosurgeon Eben Alexander, who was in a coma with no brain, with very limited brain activity, uh, with meningitis that was actually destroying the experiential parts of his brain. And he had uh, repeated enriched vastly um, sensory and sensual experiences. So that's the first one. The second one is there's this thing, um, <laughs> I almost hate to bring it up, but it's, it's been studied, uh, called autoerotic asphyxiation, where someone will, um, usually in the sex act, will suffocate the other person to the point that they pass out. And it's very dangerous. Don't try it at home, kids. Um, <laughs> but why would you do that? Why, why would, why would you do that? And so the people who have experienced that and gotten to the point of passing out, they say that they go into a psychedelic experience. They go into this very enriched environment of, uh, sensory input. 
Well, at the same time, the reason they're passing out is because the blood flow is being cut off. The brain activity is reducing and shutting down. And then the third thing is people that have used psilocybin, when they look at them and they're having their uh, enriched psychedelic experiences, you would expect, again, to see the brain lighting up like a Christmas tree because, after all, our consciousness, our experience is the byproduct of all this stuff happening. And in fact, you see the opposite of that. You see that the brain activity shuts down. In some people, it's as close to death in terms of brain activity as a person can get and still be breathing and still be alive and conscious. So what, what that's telling us then, if we believe in science, what that's telling us is that these phenomenon, these experiences are completely contradicting what we would expect to see if our consciousness was just the byproduct of what's happening in the brain. So I just wanted to lay that out there because I wanted to give not just the ancient view and the occultic view, but I wanted to bring it in again and sort of make it modern, if that makes sense. All right, so let's shift gears. So when we're talking about ascending, when we're talking about um, experiencing meditative states where we encounter other beings or other entities or seemingly other units of consciousness, whether we call them angels, whether we call them aliens, whether we call them ascended masters, whether we call them um, ancestors or, you know, psychic phenomenon that seems genuine where a person who is a psychic medium or a channeler can absolutely know information that is very personal and very private between the person who was deceased and the person who's getting the reading. Yeah, there's a lot of fakes out there. There is. But that doesn't necessarily discount the phenomenon because, again, this is something that's ubiquitous throughout humanity. Humanity has always had experiences of people from the afterlife. Again, the oldest form of spirituality is shamanism, and shamanism is based on going into altered states of consciousness, either through what they call plant medicine, through things like psilocybin or mushrooms, or uh, there's this one out there that's like a toad poison or something that they take, and, and it takes them on this sort of vision quest, this sort of journey that is not happening on the physical plane. It's happening somewhere else. Or they can use drums, they can use music, they can use beats, they can use breathe, breath techniques that will then also take them on these journeys. Basically, it's just a, a journey and an exploration of the imagination. Carl Jung did this in his Red Book, uh, the Red Book by Carl Jung, where he talks about confronting the unconscious. He just went inside, and as he writes about his his inner journeys, they're very, very similar to what people have documented in every culture and every generation about what a shamanic journey is. So that brings up the question. So if we are meditating and we have imagine imaginal experiences, I don't want to say imaginary because that implies that they're just complete baloney. So let's use the term imaginal. It's happening in the realm of dreams. It's happening in the realm of imagination, right? Um, or someone goes on a not plant medicine induced shamanic journey and experiences all of these things. They're experiencing them in the imaginal realm, in the imaginal space. Nothing's happening on what's going on around you. Same thing when you dream. When you dream, you're experiencing it in the imaginal space. So what I'm saying is, is that what we call these higher realms of that we ascend to or that we go to cannot be measured in the same way that we measure things on a material plane because it's happening on a material plane. So if anybody talks about ascending or going out of their body or going within, those are all just descriptions that we're using as though these experiences were happening in a three-dimensional world uh, like the one in which we live. <laughs> Does that make sense to you? So I'm giving you a framework. Again, I'm giving you a map to understand these phenomena 
And with that map, then hopefully a pathway to how you can, if you want to, experience these things. But remember, I want to remind you, the map is not the territory. It's not the same thing. It never fully, uh, the map can never fully depict the actual territory and maps can be distorted and they are. I mean, by, by definition, a map is a deleted pattern of the territory or of the experience. It's smaller. You can hold it in your lap or see it on your phone. So there's a lot of deletion there. Um, maps are distorted. Maps are generalized. And so that's what I'm saying when I'm saying we're looking at this from the hermetic perspective. And I'm not saying this is the territory. This is how it is. I'm saying here's a map that can help us understand and navigate the territory of our own consciousness, of our own minds, of our own spirits, of our own being, and whatever else might be out there. So whenever someone says ascending or going up or going higher, it's it's a metaphor. It's an analogy. Or if I say going within uh, to experience something inward planes, Again, it's a map. It's a metaphor. Uh, I hope that makes sense to you. I hope you guys are tracking along with this. Maybe I'll, I'll look, uh, <laughs> some of the comments, make sure I'm not losing people. Uh, thanks, Joe. Joe says this is good. Hey, Derek, good to see you out there. Um, so yeah, Joe's made several comments. Shannon, thank you for commenting. Um, and yes, yeah, Shannon, you're right. The brain itself distorts. So hopefully you're following me and tracking with me. I just want to give you a good um, left brain logical explanation of what I'm talking about. Now, what we're really talking about then when we're talking about ascending or we're talking about experiencing higher planes or we're talking about experiencing non-physical entities, what we are really talking about is the territory of consciousness, the territory of our own consciousness, building on the presupposition that consciousness is based reality, and therefore there are other things in these realms of consciousness that are beyond ours. There's a whole uh, school of psychology called transpersonal psychology that deals with this and addresses this. And so when we're talking about that, what we're really talking about is changing your state of mind, changing your state of being. It's interesting that people can shift their states and shift their states throughout their day. And those states can be very, very different in terms of the qualities of those experiences. So if you were to go out today and just have a relaxing afternoon and not worry about tomorrow and not worry about your job and not think about all the problems that you have going on in this material plane, in this physical plane, and you just experience relaxation and bliss and joy, that's a state of being that is cut off from or separate from the stress, the anxiety, the anger that you might be feeling If you go into work tomorrow on Monday and you get an email from your boss that says, I need to see you at nine o'clock pronto, we need to discuss a mistake that you made. You're going to read that and all of a sudden your state's going to shift and now you're going to be in a state of perhaps anxiety. You're going to be in a state of distress. You're going to um, maybe you're worried about your job. Am I going to get fired? Maybe you're angry. Um, you have all those things. Well, now you're cut off from the relaxation. Now you're cut off from the bliss. Now you're cut off from the joy you were feeling the previous day when you weren't in that environment. And so these states are like uh, like states. You can think about them like states, like physical states on a map. That you go from one state, you cross a boundary line, and you're into another state. And when you cross that boundary line and you're into that other state, then It's as though the state you had the previous day doesn't exist because you're not experiencing it, right? We know from trauma research that people can go into dissociated states. There's even a diagnosis in uh, therapy. It's very, very, very rare. Hollywood likes to make a lot of it, but it's called dissociative identity disorder. And it's based on this same principle of states, that I'm talking about, 
the problem is, is that these states are not just states. These states are separate personas, separate personalities. And when someone's in one personality, they don't necessarily even know about the other personalities. So some of the symptoms of this is a loss of time. Uh, a person is going somewhere and they end up somewhere else and they don't know how they got there and they lost eight hours of their time. And if you were to observe that person, they're acting like a completely different person. There's a dissociative boundary. There's a border between states and states. There's a border between personalities and personalities. So we know that these things exist just within everyday consciousness and everyday reality. So every spiritual system that's worth anything understands that in order to journey to these higher realms, again, that's a metaphor, in order to journey to these other places, it's all happening within my own mind. It's all happening within my own consciousness. But I have these dissociative boundaries. And so for most people, our mind becomes 100% preoccupied with this material world. If you just observe your thoughts, chances are really good that everything you're thinking about, everything you're talking about, everything you're meditating on, everything you're ruminating about, worrying about, dreaming about, uh, imagining, daydreaming, whatever, it all has to do with job, money, family, relationships, vacations, past mistakes, if you're living in a state of regret or depression, future harm that could come from the material world around you. And so our thoughts, our consciousness, if you will, is locked into this larger territory, right? So you have on the, on a map, you have countries, you have regions, you have states. So for a lot of people, every state that they go into, every thought that they have is some form of an obsession with the world out there, with the objective world out there, with the material world out there. And so that becomes the region in which they experience their various states. And that becomes the dissociative boundary of consciousness. And that's how they understand themselves as a person. And that's how they interpret their lives. So the purpose of ascending or journeying or meditating in a spiritual context is to teach, is to be able to leave those states, to be able to leave the material obsession, not the material world. Your body's still going to be here. You're still going to have some sort of consciousness. Even people that have out-of-body experiences and astral project have some sense their body is still here for the most part. You can so dissociate. But again, you're not getting out of your body. It's not that your some essence is actually physically leaving and going to some other place. Like, uh, because again, we're just trying to make what is qualitative and what is consciousness, what cannot be measured. We're trying to understand it in some measurable way. And so people struggle to achieve astral projection because they're trying so hard to get out of their body because they think they're going someplace out there. You're not going someplace out there. You're going someplace in here. What you're doing is you're transcending or you're moving past or you're crossing the state line, the dissociative boundary, if you will, between who you know yourself to be and understand yourself to be within the context of your physical human life into some other state where you're having some other experience. And this experience is populated. It has a geography it has a uh, it has a context of surrounding right uh it might be in nature it might be um seem like another planet or another something that you you hadn't imagined before but it's going to have a geography and then invariably without fail it's going to have a population so in the same way that you go to the store and you're going to encounter people if you cross these boundaries and you start going on these inward journeys Invariably, if you cross that dissociative boundary, you're going to run into <laughs> other beings, other entities. Again, I would point you to Carl Jung's Red Book, right? He, uh, 
he there was a population to it there was uh there were beings there were entities that had uh that were singular in their personalities and their expressions and they were different and so whether you want to say well that was just you know figments of his imagination i would agree it just depends on how we define imagination in other words is there reality i guess here's the question can we call something that we experience even if we just experience in the realm of our mind can we call that real so it depends on how you define real from a scientific materialist perspective no it's not real because it's not concrete and it can't be measured but from an experiential subjective level it's very real because it's something that i experienced and this is another aspect that's really important that i want to point out when you start getting into these subjective realms this is for you this is for you and this is your experience so it's real to you but we should never take our subjective experiences and impose them on other people as an objective reality or as a dogma or as something that everybody else has to follow that's not the purpose of it the purpose of it is and that's why I'm really leery of you know <clears throat> channeled works that people devote to and commit to almost like a religion you know whether it's the law of one and ra or it's um abraham hicks or it's the seth uh material from you know or whatever the case may be i think we need to be really cautious about that because if a person who is channeling they're experiencing what they're experiencing in the realm of their own subjective experience and their own consciousness and so i just think we need to be careful so i don't ever want to push my subjective experiences or my subjective understanding on other people as a path that they have to follow it's for us which brings me to the last part of this that i want to get into and i'm just about out of time i spent probably too much time um talking about this stuff but trying to give you an understanding of these things because people struggle with it like how do i send they're trying to push themselves out of their body there or the first thing that flashes in their mind um you know i don't know yoda shows up in their imagination and starts talking to them well that could be a value or it could be just a a distraction you know it could just be that you're still living within your own uh, it's not necessarily transpersonal it's just aspects of your subconscious that are speaking to you or things that you are that, that don't really have the same kind of qualitative value as the things that I'm talking about and so this can but but so that's the first obstacle I want to help you overcome like if uh, let's say you're interested in astral projection or something you're trying so hard to get out of your body ain't going to work or you're trying to go someplace on a shamanic journey and you're trying to go someplace ain't going to work it's all happening within you it's all within you it's all within your mind So that's why I'm talking about inner planes and higher worlds. When I'm talking about higher worlds, I'm talking about you go into a space that is uh uh I almost said vegetative. <laughs> Not like your brain vegetative, but it's got trees and bushes and flowers and bees and that kind of thing, right? So that's it's a different world than the physical world in which you're living. and then maybe you meet a uh, a spirit guide or something or you meet uh, an entity or an inner teacher that is going to speak to you and give you guidance and give you wisdom and give you understanding um about life and whatever the case may be or because these realms from a hermetic perspective are also considered to be energetic and again energy is a metaphor but energetic in the sense that something touches you energetically something impacts you energetically when you're in this altered state you feel something we did this in church right like i feel the presence of god i feel the anointing yeah in some places that was just emotionalism and mass hypnosis and whatever but even hypnosis is a different state of being it's a different state of mind it's following the same principle but i do believe there were things energetically that we experienced that then we brought back with us into the material plane that created a difference. And so from this perspective something that really interests me and I'm getting off topic a little bit 
But uh, well-being from a hermetic perspective, and I'll get into this more in the future, is all about balancing energy centers within ourselves and all about doing energy work. And I know from my own life and working with other people that I can receive more at times in an energy work session if I'm working with somebody that really knows what they're doing and is experienced and really has expertise and gifting and ability in this area that I can transform energetically in a way that produces better results for me in a shorter period of time than if I just go and talk to somebody about how I'm thinking and they analyze how I'm thinking and try to get me to change the way I'm thinking, change my beliefs, get through my distortions and all that stuff. There's that, that thing has its value. That's what we do in therapy. It has its value and it has its place. But from this perspective, uh, these other planes of consciousness also contain a transforming energy or a healing energy or whatever you may want to call it that can only be accessed by you when, by you or someone else when they're in an altered state of mind or they're in an altered state of consciousness. So where do we begin? I would not suggest beginning by going out and getting plant medicine unless you're working with someone who has been initiated in the use of plant medicine. In other words, what I'm saying is don't go get yourself <clears throat> some mushrooms and go up on the mountain and, and do your thing. Now, if you want to do that recreational and whatever, that's, that's up to you. I'm not shaming that or policing that in any way, shape or form. I'm just saying I'm not recommending that as a way for you to begin, but a way for you to begin is to really through meditation to begin to withdraw your thoughts away from <clears throat> all the energy and stuff that is attached to all these physical things that are out there. Um, somebody once said, I think it's a, a sound principle in my experience, um, where attention goes, energy flows. And so I'm energetically, I'm giving all my energy to problems. I'm giving all my energy to people. I'm giving all my energy to situations. I'm giving all my energy to what's happening in the material plane. And sometimes I have to withdraw that and pull that back. How do I do that? Well, through some basic meditation techniques. I mean, to be honest, guys, that's where a lot of us need to start is just learning how to get some cognitive distance between what we're obsessively thinking about so that in meditation, what we're doing is the first step to that is quieting the mind through various different techniques. And there's all kinds of good stuff, materials out there. Maybe, you know, I'll do some teaching on meditation. I've been meditating for, you know, 23 years. And so pulling your mind away from that and try, trying to quiet and silence the mind on the inside. And you can do that by focusing on something besides what you're thinking about, keeping your focus there. And allowing that that process in and of itself creates begins to create this cognitive distance. That's the only way I know how to describe it between you and everything you're obsessing on out there. So having in meditation a point of focus. So for some people, that point of focus is their breath. You just focus on your breath, breathing in through the nose for a certain count, holding for a second, breathing out through your mouth for a certain count. And then when your mind begins to obsess on people and problems and situations and vacations and what you're going to have for dinner, you catch yourself doing that and you bring yourself back, back to the point of focus. For other people, it's the use of chanting or uh, uh, sacred, what they consider to be a sacred word. And that can be anything. It doesn't have to be a name of God. I used to do this with the name of God uh, in the Kabbalistic tradition, yod Hey vav Hey, um, which is the Hebrew letters that make up the word Yahweh. Um, and I found that intonating or chanting those for some people, it's ohm, you know, intonating and vibrating ohm, you know, ohm, or it can be the vowels. I've done this with the vowels, you know, it's vowel sounds, ah, eh, e, just focusing on that. And when you're doing it externally, your whole body is involved in that. It just becomes easier to pull for me anyway 
to pull my consciousness away from all these situations that I'm facing and dealing with in time and space. So the point is, is that when we begin to ascend, we're doing an inward journey. And here's what I mean by that. We are detaching from the world around us. We are shutting out the world around us and we are recovering our thought life and we're recovering our energy and we're calling it back to ourselves. We're pulling it away from its obsessions on all the things that are out there so that we bring this energy back into our self. Joe Dispenza does an excellent job of uh, providing a scientific basis for this and scientific theory for this, for those of you that are interested in this. And that's the great thing about this. You can, you can apply these principles and still be a Christian, believe in Christ. You can apply these principles and, um, be into some other path of new age spirituality. You can apply these principles as a scientific materialist and still have the same experience because it's the quality of the experience, not the philosophy or the belief system that is really important here. And so one of the things, though, that you'll begin to experience, and let me just give some cautions here. One of the things that you'll begin to experience if you do this and you do it diligently enough and you do it often enough and you persevere through it, you will eventually be able to pull that energy back into yourself. You will eventually be able to withdraw from those various different things. And when that happens, usually spontaneously, uh, a lot can take place inside of you. Spontaneously, a lot can take place inside of you. Uh, you can have spontaneous intuitions. You can have spontaneous precognitions. You can have spontaneous encounters with imaginal entities. Call them spirit guides. Call them part of your own consciousness. Whatever you want. Angels, archangels, doesn't matter. The map is not the territory. But the other thing that you might experience, um, and this is going to be true for a lot of people, is, and, and this is a necessary step that we try to avoid and escape, and that's going to be that you're probably going to find that traumas are going to come up, uh, emotional experiences, things that aren't balanced inside yourself, uh, you're going to begin to experience because, again, you're crossing those dissociative boundaries. So it makes sense. If you have dissociated states from trauma that you've experienced, if you have dissociated states of mind that you have judged, you don't allow yourself to be angry, you don't allow yourself to be a human being, you don't allow yourself to feel shame or uh, to make mistakes because that's something that we all experience, um, then don't be surprised if that stuff comes up. And almost every spiritual path that I've explored is looking at that as an aspect of healing, it's looking at that as an aspect of balancing those energies inside of yourself. And so just be aware that you could end up facing your own interior demons, not demons in the sense of, you know, fallen angels and separate entities, but your own interior demons, your shadow, the parts of yourself that you, um, don't want to deal with or don't want to experience that's healing as well. Some people are really gifted at this. Some people, they can just take off in their mind and they're experiencing higher realms. They're experiencing angels. They're experiencing these other entities, call them whatever you want to call them again. Uh, and they're benefiting from them. They're val they're, they're, they're a value to them. It brings uh, a sense of empowerment. It brings a sense of joy. It brings a sense of freedom. It brings a sense of, uh, healing. It brings a different perspective. It brings in wisdom. It brings in intuition. It brings in precognition, all these various different things. But the point is that I'm going to finish here. The material world is the terminus of all this stuff. It's where you bring these things in. You use these things as tools for personal transformation. You use these things as inner resources, if you will, to bring these things back so that you can live your life here on earth. So if you have a sort of a more new age uh, metaphysical understanding of reality and you believe that you existed before, that you had past lives, 
that you chose this life, that you are an aspect of the divine who came here, then just remember that you came here. You, you chose to be here. Like this idea that we're just separate entities and humans and we need to make the track back to the divine to what end or what purpose? Um, so, and why this life and why are you who you are and experiencing the things that you are? And so if you came here, you came here to, to grow, to learn, to do some work and that work and growth and learning happens on this material plane. If you came here to provide service, that service happens or is felt, the impact of it is felt on the material plane. So I hope this was helpful for you. I hope this made sense to you. Um, thank you for the comments. And uh, if you have questions, uh, let me know. Again, just for those of you that might have missed the announcement, um, I'm only going to be doing, I think, two more of these on this page. I'll be moving my Sunday morning lives on my Facebook page. I'll still be streaming live on YouTube. But on my Facebook page, uh, I'm going to be moving it to the New Day Global Community come um, September 17th. And so on the 17th, I think will be the last time I'll do it here. And then on the 24th and going forward, you'll need to move over to the group or watch on YouTube. So anyway, thanks for watching. Love you guys. Uh, again, I hope this was really uh, helpful and encouraging to you. And uh, but let me know, you know, because I'm doing this uh, with you guys. And uh, I don't have an agenda. I don't have uh, something that I feel like I have to teach because I have a gospel that needs to get out like it was before or a message from the Lord. So um, I want this to be very much collaborative. Those of you that have joined the group, thank you for that. And um, I, I think Sharon says, can I get a invite to the group? Um, yeah, Sharon, you certainly can. You can also go to my page at the top of my page. I have... Um, uh, pinned the group so you can join from there as well. So anyway, um, love you guys and uh, look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for watching.